Hey everybody, it's Lon Seib, and it's time once again for your weekly wrap up. And this week we're going to talk all about podcasting, where it came from, what it is, and what it might be in the future. And what's most interesting about podcasting, unlike all the other stuff we consume on the internet, nobody really owns this standard. It just kind of exists in the ether. Let's get to it. Now, I'm sure many of you know what a podcast is, but in case you don't, from the user's perspective, they are usually long-form audio shows that you download onto your device to listen to. The podcasting standard allows for more than just audio, though. You can have a podcast be a video, and your device can download the video to consume later. But given how this medium evolved, it really began as an audio format, just given the bandwidth limitations at the time that it began. And the video stuff, given the costs involved, largely went into big platform providers like YouTube that could afford to provide that level of bandwidth. So for the most part, podcasts you encounter today are audio only. Now you'll encounter a whole bunch of different types of audio content when you're exploring the podcasting ecosystem. Some are series that are focused on a single story. For example, The Thing About Pam is an NBC true crime documentary. You also have news updates like you see there from The Daily with The New York Times. And there's a lot of independent content under the surface, but it's very hard to bubble up to the top. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as we work our way through here. Now, as I mentioned, podcasting is a decentralized medium. There is no dominant platform. And just like how audio became the dominant file type based on the conditions at the time in which podcasting began, the structure of podcasting evolved from what the internet looked like when podcasting began. You had independent websites hosting all sorts of different content. You as a reader went out and discovered that stuff and consumed it. Maybe you added a bookmark so you could keep up with that website down the road. That model is how the podcasting model largely works. And it's built around a standard that emerged when we had this decentralized web called RSS, or Really Simple Syndication. And at the time that the RSS standard was put in place, you had a bunch of different websites all over the internet. They all look different. People use different tools to create these websites. And as this decentralized web began to evolve, there were some similarities between websites. Typically, if you had an article on a website, there was a title, there was body text, there was images, and there was also a URL, a link to that particular article. And if you could take those pieces of information in common and develop a standard by which your website could present that to other websites and applications, you could make it easier to syndicate content from one site to another. And that is where RSS came into play. So here's an example of some websites as they appeared in 1999. Uh, this is around the time RSS began to emerge as a standard. And if you look at the RSS code here for a NASA website, you can see where you've got these items that you could programmatically put into this format and make universally available irrespective of what your website was running under the hood. So we have an item tag here, we have a description, we've got a publication date and a link, and you can of course go beyond that. And websites have been using RSS for decades now. It's a very well-established standard. It is baked into just about every piece of content management software you might use to run a website, like WordPress. 
And to give you a more modern example, this is RetroRGB.com run by my friend Bob. And as you can see, the structure of his articles today are similar to how they were 20 years ago, where we've got a headline, we have some descriptive text, and we have a link to bring people to that article. And if I pull Bob's RSS feed from his website, I can put it into an RSS reader like this and look at his website in a different way. And if there's an article that I want to look at, I can click through to his website. And if you go onto any WordPress site and just append the URL with feed, it will generate an RSS feed for a particular tag or category. So for example, if I just wanted to pull an RSS feed of Bob's interviews, I can do that right here. Another neat thing with RSS from a syndication standpoint is that you can mash all these together because these are a standard way of presenting data on the internet. So this is a screenshot from my RSS reader that I use to find stories to talk about here on the channel. I'll do a whole video on that uh, coming up in a few weeks. And all of these different RSS feeds are coming from different content management engines, but they all follow the standard. So when I load up my feed reader, I've got all the websites that I follow in one place with the most recent content right up at the top. And this has been a really effective way for me to do what I do. And I've been using an RSS reader now for probably 15 or 16 years. And we'll have some fun diving into how to use RSS readers in the modern era because I do think they're still very relevant even though Google got rid of their beloved reader a number of years ago. Now, the father of podcasting, if you will, is Dave Weiner, who was an early advocate for syndication of blogs and websites and was the guy who managed to get most of the mainstream media to start using his RSS standard as the standard means of content syndication. And the story of how podcasting came about is rather interesting because at the time RSS was created and standardized around Dave Weiner's format, it did not have a way to embed an enclosure, a file that could be downloaded. You had the links and the descriptions and the titles, but not something additional to that. So what happened one day uh, was that Adam Curry, the former uh, MTV VJ and a pioneering independent content creator, uh, reached out to his friend Dave Weiner and said, hey, I want a way to be able to embed a link to a file inside of the RSS feed. Now, what was most interesting about this request to Dave Weiner from his friend Adam Curry was that Curry did not want audio content initially to be downloaded. He was looking to distribute video over the internet in a more innovative way. Now, remember, this is January of 2001 when all of this came about. And at that point in time, most people were still on dial-up. Many were starting to get broadband connections, but for the most part, broadband back then was about one megabit downstream. And one of the things that Dave says about video at the time was that when he clicked on a link to watch a video, he has to wait. The wait, he says, was longer than the video itself. In other words, he would have to wait two minutes for 10 seconds of video, and the quality he got once he was done waiting was usually pretty bad. So what happened as he and Adam discussed this further is that he saw a way in which that downloading could happen overnight, for example, where you weren't waiting, and then you would have a bunch of content waiting for you on the hard disk in better quality 
when you woke up because there would be no weight essentially and the quality that you would get would be limited by the size of the local hard disk and not by the capacity of his connection. And this also led, and this is in the same article, you can check it out at the link you saw a little bit earlier, this also led to a different user interface that is largely now how we consume just about all multimedia content on the internet in that you subscribe to a channel as opposed to clicking and waiting. And as part of that subscription, you are getting content pushed down to you. And most importantly here was his vision for how this would operate. There is no central authority, no spectrum to allocate. It's open to amateurs like the internet itself. Now what's important to note is that this was just regarded as an addition to the RSS specification, not podcasting. And the reason why it wasn't considered podcasting is because there wasn't an iPod yet. It did not come out until later that year in 2001. But the development of mass consumer MP3 devices like the iPod happened alongside this development on the RSS side, along with bandwidth that could support downloading some of these larger files overnight or in the background. And all of those things working together is what allowed podcasting to emerge. So in addition to the player here, it required some software on the computer, iTunes, in order to manage what goes onto the player. The player did not have its own network connection. And so what people started doing was developing software that operated off to the side that would pull down these feeds and transfer the audio data into iTunes to automatically get put onto these iPods so people could consume the content. Now, I got into podcasting as a listener way back in 2005, and that was when Leo Laporte randomly pulled out an audio recorder at Macworld Expo in January of that year and invited some of his former co-hosts from Tech TV to talk about what they saw at the show. And I was a big fan of Tech TV, and I was very disappointed at around that time when they canceled most of the Tech TV shows and laid off all these hosts that I like to listen to or watch. And when this discussion happened, it was great because I was able to get what I liked about Tech TV in my car as I was driving around. And Leo very quickly saw the value in this and launched his network, which is still operating to this day. And he's got a lot of other shows on there like Security Now, which is my favorite podcast that he does with Steve Gibson. That was one of his very early shows as well. And it was something that allowed me to consume the kind of content that I wanted to consume in a very convenient way and for free. Now, if you want to listen to that initial Leo Laporte episode, you can go to lon.tv slash twit zero, and that'll bring you right to the twit homepage where that is hosted. And what's really cool is that this little file, the 11 minutes that it was, got the gears turning that led to his podcast network. And I think what he did really inspired a lot of other people in the tech space in particular to launch their own efforts, myself included. Um, so this was really a genesis for a lot of different things. And Leo wasn't the only one with a following experimenting with this new medium. A lot of other people did too. And by the end of that year in 2005, actually the midpoint of the year, Apple integrated podcasting into iTunes. So up until that point, you had some other piece of software operating outside of iTunes, downloading those audio files and then inserting them. Uh, Apple just took that functionality and built it into iTunes. But what's interesting is that Apple was not the host of these podcasts. They were simply grabbing the RSS feed 
and presenting it to the user and the audio files were still hosted independently just like they are today. And it was interesting that Apple decided not to become the platform for podcasting, but rather just facilitate it in a more convenient way. Incidentally, podcasting was not Apple's term. It just became the term uh, that people used. And I'm sure Apple saw this as an opportunity to sell more iPods. And of course, they were not complaining about the fact that a medium was using part of their brand name in it. Now, Apple has largely been the market leader when it comes to pod catching applications. And while iTunes is no longer a thing with Apple, they broke everything off into separate apps. The Apple Podcast app is still one of the most popular ones out there, but it's not the only game in town by far. In fact, if you go on the Apple App Store on your phone, you will see a lot of choices. And this was just the curated list of apps that Apple recommends. There are many, many more beyond that. And of course, you can get similar apps on the Android side. And most of these companies are out there creating their own directories of curated content. And I'll show you some examples of that in a minute. Um, but no two are the same. Each app has its own features. And I found that uh, for me, the best app is called Pocket Casts. And this is an app that just does everything that I want a pod catching app to do. It is really feature rich. I reviewed it a few years ago. It largely still works the same as it did back then. What's nice is that I have it synced up. So if I go from my phone to my computer's web browser, the podcast I was listening to comes right up right where I was listening to it. If I pause it and then switch back to the phone, it picks up right where I left off. It's a really cool app, definitely worth checking, checking out. I guess uh, Public Radio owned it for a while and they recently just sold it uh, over to the owners of WordPress. And it's got a good amount of support behind it and one that I am quite happy with. So that is what podcasting looks like for a listener, but what about a creator? Well, podcasting remains, in my opinion, one of the more challenging ways to get started as an independent creator. If you're somebody who's very well known and has a following in different places, it's probably a little bit easier to get started, but there are a number of hurdles on podcasts that don't exist, for example, on YouTube. Uh, one of the big ones initially is finding a hosting provider, because remember, this is a decentralized medium, so you have to host your RSS feed for your episodes and all the information in them. You have to create that feed somehow. Uh, you also have to store all of the MP3 files that will be associated with that feed, which represent the audio from your show. And it's gotten a lot easier in 2022 to do this. There are some great providers out there like Podbean and Libsyn. Uh, most of these though are paid providers. I was using Libsyn when I was first messing around with podcasting because it wasn't all that expensive and they didn't charge you for bandwidth for downloads. And you can imagine if you were a popular podcast, how expensive it could get, especially in the early 2000s when bandwidth was at a premium. If your 20 megabyte file was getting downloaded 15,000 times, you could see uh, just how quickly things would get uh, escalated in cost. And Libsyn was one of the early providers that focused on alleviating some of that risk for creators by just charging a fixed rate. And what they would do is limit how big the shows you could upload would be each month. And that was their way of kind of managing their bandwidth costs. But it's worked for them. They're still in business today and a lot of people like it. They also handle the feeds as most of these podcast providers do. I recently switched from self-hosting everything over to anchor.fm. 
This is a company owned by Spotify who is trying to become the podcasting platform, although I don't think they're necessarily succeeding at that. But what I like about Anchor from a creator perspective is that the hosting is free. Uh, like other hosting providers, they do the RSS feed for you. And that feed you can, of course, share to anyone. So just like the old days of podcasting, uh, you can grab my RSS feed there and you can inject it into whatever podcatcher you want and get it directly. Now, one of the things, though, that you have to do when you're setting up a podcast is register it with all of the major providers. So it's not an automatic thing. When your file gets uploaded, it's not going to be found unless you tell all these directories that you exist. So you have to go over to Apple, for example, and apply to be in the Apple Podcast app. You have to go to Spotify. You have to go to Google. And every major directory you need to register with so that when somebody picks up one of these gazillion apps, they can find you. Uh, so that's really important because when I'm looking for a podcast, I load up Pocket Casts and hit the search button. And if I don't see it in there, I've got to start digging further to find it. Um, so that is one of the big challenges here is just managing all of this and making sure that if some new podcast platform emerges that you get your feed registered with them as well. Uh, it is quite a bit of effort to keep going with this because it's not like YouTube where everything just exists. And that brings us to our next item here, which is discovery. It is really hard, even when you're registered with one of these directories, to be discovered. And what I'm finding with this medium throughout its history is that those who came in with a following tend to do better. Leo Laporte's a great example. He had a lot of techie people following him from all of his prior work. So he had an audience built in that would follow him to this new medium. And if you look at Edison Research's most current popular podcasts, you'll see that most of them have some kind of uh, momentum behind them. So for example, Joe Rogan uh, began as a popular comedian and TV host, but he's now uh, being paid by Spotify to do his show. The Daily, which is number two, is a New York Times publication. This American Life is published by a public radio station out in Chicago, so they had a built-in audience to grow that one uh, up a bit. Uh, iHeartRadio does stuff you should know. My Favorite Murder is hosted by people connected with Ellen DeGeneres. Pod Save America are a bunch of former Obama staffers. So you can see just like having those networks of people that can help promote your content are really, really important. Now, oddly, I think the best discovery engine for podcasts right now is YouTube and its algorithm. And if you take a look at a podcaster that I discovered in this way, Lex Fridman, uh, you can see what Lex does. He takes portions of these interviews that he does and optimizes them for YouTube. So if he's got a two-hour interview, some of his actually go beyond two hours, he'll pull out different topics that he discusses with that guest, and YouTube will offer that up as a shorter snippet. So here he's got a minute 35 in one of them, four minutes and 52 in another one like that. And one of the things I've been recommending to people is that if you are starting out a podcast, plan to take some time to grab clips from that show and upload them to a dedicated channel on YouTube to attract people in. Because if they see a few clips that they like, they might decide to start following your podcast and YouTube can really help with that discovery. And that's an area that I found to be really lacking uh, on these podcast platforms. Now, my podcast is really just an audio version of this show. And if I look at one of my 
most poor performing weekly wrap-ups of the last six months or so. It's this one I did on social shopping last week or the week before. I only got 3,100 views on it, um, but on the podcast side, I get about the same number no matter what I post. Uh, so that one did about 117, but you can see some of these other weekly wrap-ups that I did that were far more popular on YouTube didn't do much better. And the reason is, is that my audience is not going over to the podcast and I'm not really attracting any new viewers because I am just one voice shouting out there in the middle of nowhere with no real algorithm recommending my content to podcast users that might not have heard of me before. And don't forget, most of these podcatchers are mostly directories and those directories have advertising value. So many podcasts that are featured on these apps pay to be featured there or perhaps there's some kind of financial arrangement for other parts of the business like what Apple might be able to negotiate as an example. So YouTube will often put me on the front page of your app. You will never see me on the front page of any of these discovery sections on any of these apps because I can't afford to be there. Now the next problem you're going to run into as a creator are analytics. There is no way to really discern how many subscribers you really have to your podcast. The reason, of course, is that there's a bazillion different podcatching applications out there, and there's no universal way to record how many people have subscribed to you. So if you think about Apple's iTunes example, Apple downloads my RSS feed and then distributes it out to all of their users. So I can't even measure the number of RSS feed hits as a means of trying to figure out how many subscribers I have. And this is the analytics that I get now from Anchor, and this is largely what I've seen on other platforms as well. So I do get an idea as to what the most popular podcatching applications are for my podcast. You can see that 52% of them are Apple Podcasts, but 25% are other. Uh, you can also get some degree of how many downloads your shows are getting. So over the last year and a half that I've been using Anchor, I've had just under 20,000 plays, which is pretty low. And they have determined, based on their statistical analysis, that I have a unique audience of about 141 people. But this is another area that's really hard to manage because podcasts are largely not downloaded anymore. They're streamed because we have much faster bandwidth both at home and when we're out and about on our 4G and 5G networks. So you might start listening to me one day from your home Wi-Fi and then you're on the road picking up the rest of the show and grabbing it from a different IP. It's really hard to measure unique audience levels. It's also really hard to measure how long people watch for from an advertising perspective. YouTube gives me a lot of detail as to how long somebody watches for, when they drop off the video, all that kind of stuff. You don't get that here. You just get the number of downloads and that is pretty much it. Uh, there are some limited demographics that I'm getting on Anchor, but this is only from people who download the show on Spotify. It doesn't count towards any of the other podcatching applications that people might be using to watch my content. And related to this, monetization is a challenge for a whole host of reasons. Uh, the lack of good analytics means there's no way to guarantee to advertisers that people are actually listening to your ads, even if they download and listen to the show. So for example, if I hear an ad a million times, I often ask my digital assistant to skip ahead 90 seconds to get beyond it. And one of the cool things that Pocket Cast does is it keeps track of how much time I save using some of their various features. And it looks like I have skipped about 20 hours worth of 
content just to get around some of those ads that might be annoying me. Now, all that said, the industry appears to be quite healthy and growing from an advertising perspective. Grandview Research here reports that the podcasting industry was valued at $11.46 billion in 2020, with a lot of opportunity for growth in the future. And that number is backed up by a few other studies that show similar strength to this market. And it's because a lot of people download a lot of podcasts, but I would say if you were to look at how those dollars are distributed, a bulk of the money is probably going to the largest ones and there's less money going to the little guys and gals out there. And I think you would see a much more even distribution of revenue subscriber to subscriber on YouTube, for example, versus what the podcast industry currently looks like, likely due to the fact that its decentralization makes it really hard from an analytics perspective. Anchor, though, has a really neat advertising system and the reason why they're trying to attract many smaller creators in is because they have a programmatic component to it. So when you're putting your show together, you upload little uh, snippets of your show and you can put these ad markers in between. And if there is an ad available for your channel, you do your on-air read and record it as a separate piece of audio. And when somebody downloads the podcast, the ad is inserted at the time of download. So you've probably heard a podcast that you listen to halfway through and then download it again and you've got a different ad, well, it actually programmatically generates the advertising as you go. And I think there's a real opportunity here for those smaller podcasts, especially if Anchor and Spotify are able to sell large blocks of small podcasts in this way, that might lend itself to a better outcome. But you as the creator have to read this ad in order for it to go up, which means that there's labor involved in approving it. When you look at how YouTube currently works, the ads are made by the people that make the ads and they're just inserted into the video without the creator having to do anything. So we'll have to see how they continue to develop this technology. One of the cool things though on the anchor side from a monetization perspective is that uh, they do occasionally let you run a house ad advertising anchor and it actually pays okay, but I'm not making that much because of my small audience size. So if you are Looking to start out, again, I think Anchor is probably the best place to get going. If you are hosting anywhere else, my advice would be to use PodTrack as your analytics provider. It's really easy. You insert their code before your URL, and that will centralize all of the downloads through their system, and they have an advertising platform attached to this analytics platform. So if they notice that you're getting a lot of listenership, they might approach you with advertising opportunities. So that's definitely another option to pursue, not only from an analytics standpoint, but also from a monetization standpoint. So that is podcasting in a nutshell. A lot to unpack here, but I think it's a great example of how the internet should work. It is decentralized, it is syndicated, it's universal, and it's hard to censor. And I think those are things that have a lot of relevance right now in 2022. That said, it's a lot harder to break into this market because if people don't know who you are, there's no way to get them to follow you very easily unless you got a lot of money to promote yourself. So that's why I recommend people start on YouTube and work on ways to get them over to the podcast feed because YouTube is just so much better at helping talented unknown people get recognized and seen. And until we have something in the podcast world that replicates that, 
I think podcasting is a very difficult place to start your media career in 2022, unless you've got a few million people following you already. Now this week's wrap up is being brought to you by all of you. And I wanna thank Tech Time with Eric for making a super chat contribution during a live stream the other day. I also wanna thank everyone who's been contributing on an ongoing basis and all of you who watch on a regular basis too, because all of those things equal channel growth. Even if you're one of those 144 people listening to me on the podcast feed, I greatly appreciate it. And definitely let me know that you're one of them. Now, if you wanna support the channel, you can and see your name lit up in lights here on the weekly wrap up. You can go over to lon.tv support and make a monthly or a one-time contribution to the channel. We also support the YouTube membership program, which you can do by clicking the join button. And we support Floatplane and Patreon as well. We got a bunch of other places you can watch and listen to me on, including my podcast, which should be findable on most of the major platforms. Just search for lon.tv. And if you want to engage with the channel, you can subscribe to my very infrequent email list at lon.tv email. We also have the Facebook group, the Discord, and the Telegram, which are all becoming very active places to interact with me and other viewers of the channel. We have a store where I sell previously reviewed items at prices lower than new. You can get alerted every time I add something to the store via email at lon.tv slash store alert. You'll also see my little RSS feed on the bottom of that email when those alerts go out. And we recently got rid of a bunch of Apple stuff. I still have a pile over there that I have to go through. One of these weekends when the kids aren't keeping me busy, I will do so. Have our next virtual tag sale, if you will. But until then, we're going to keep cranking out new content here on the channel. And I want to thank you all for watching. I want to thank you again for your continued viewership and listenership. If you are one of the podcast listeners and keep those questions and comments coming down below in the comment feed. Until next time, this is Lon Seibin. Thanks for watching. This channel is brought to you by the Lon.TV supporters including Gold Level supporters Jim Tannis and Tom Albrecht, Hot Sauce and Video Games and Eric's Variety Channel, Brian Parker and Frank Goldman, Amda Brown and Matt Zagaya, and Chris Allegretta. If you want to help the channel, you can by contributing as little as a dollar a month. Head over to lon.tv slash support to learn more. And don't forget to subscribe. Visit lon.tv slash s.